On the year that made me today, we're going to look at a question we don't often address in this segment. What is dying a good death? It's a question which is very close to the heart and the work of our guest today. Professor Samar Aoun is recognised as a leader in compassionate care in Australia and internationally through her research as Chair of Palliative Care at the Perrin Institute at the University of Western Australia. And she's just been honoured as West Australia's Australian of the Year for 2023 for her work that helps equip people to better support those facing death and bereavement. Professor Aoun, welcome to The Year That Made Me. Oh, thank you, Julian. My pleasure. First things first, how did you feel when you found out you were Western Australia's Australian of the Year for 2023? It was a surreal feeling. I haven't haven't had it before. I mean, to be honest, um, that wasn't on my bucket list. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it took me completely by surprise. I mean, I went through the motion, you know, so really grateful for who nominated me, still don't know who. But it's a wonderful experience, but, um, you know, totally surreal and uh, overwhelming at the time. I'm sort of more now settled and um, have a plan of work now for this year. Fantastic. Could you describe for us the, the state of palliative care in Australia as you see it, in particular what's working and what's not? We have one of the best palliative care services in the world here in Australia. But um, we can do better because it's not accessible to everyone everywhere. There are certain blind spots, uh, particularly when we look at the whole definition of palliative care. It's not just about clinical care, but unfortunately, the way palliative care is funded is about mainly symptom management and clinical care. So palliative care is not just only that, it's also psychosocial care, spiritual, existential, family care support and bereavement support. So it's very ad hoc how services are able to deal with all the holistic uh, aspects of palliative care. And the other blind spots of palliative care that it's still cancer centric. More people with cancer are able to access palliative care than non-cancer people, mm. say like motor neuron disease, dementia, organ failure. So that's the other thing. The other blind spot is that it hasn't really reached well regional and rural Australia in general. And the third blind spot is that it hasn't reached non-English speaking background in general. So we still have a lot to do, basically. But with compassionate communities, um, it's about getting the community involved in this, because the only way we're going to make palliative care accessible everywhere and to everyone is by the community getting on board, getting educated, what we call into death literacy and grief literacy, know how to, how to care for someone who's caring for a life-limiting illness, who is dying or who's grieving. Death is a is a social event with a medical component. It's not the other way around. There's no need for people who are towards their end of life to keep going into hospital. There's so much lack of dignity, lack of control, because this is how it used to be in the old times. And it's still like this in a lot of cultures. <clears throat> so Lebanon, where I come from, you know, the Maori, even, you know, our Aboriginal um, friends here. I mean, that's not always. These are the real ways of really supporting each other. Of course, as, with, as a researcher, we didn't want to just people to feel, look, it's a lovey-dovey approach, you know, does it work, does it not? You know, yeah, it's good to have all that help. So we, we set out to actually prove that it works. So one of the key factors now that we found out is that only 5% of someone's 
uh, time that's suffering from a life-limiting illness or dying, only 5% is spent with a health professional, whether a doctor, a nurse, um, a palliative care, um, mm. you know, um, allied health. Even when they are in the hospital, they don't see health professionals all day. You know, they pop <laughs> in and out, you know. The rest of the time they're with their family, they're by themselves, unfortunately. A lot of people in our community suffer from social isolation, from social rejection. So this is where people, you know, spend the 95% of their time with mm. their families, their loved ones, a lot of them on the internet, a lot of them with their pets, and a lot of them sadly alone, as I said. So, so this is clear that, you know, if we need to put any funding anywhere is how to actually educate the community mm. so that palliative care can be accessible to everyone everywhere. So that's the first point. Well, there are so many uh, resonant and thought-provoking phrases in what you've said already, uh, Samar, um, in particular, death literacy and grief literacy and, and thinking about the, the distinction between those two. But also, uh, you referred to compassionate communities, which is not just a nice phrase, it's the program that you co-founded and chair, which has been a very successful uh, project in WA. Could you tell us more about that specifically, what you were trying to prove and what you have learnt from the research? Well, exactly so. What we are trying to prove that the community can work well with palliative care services to make life and death better for the community. Mm. So we've uh, recruited on board and trained a lovely group of what we call compassionate connectors, totally volunteers in the community, to provide the practical and social support. And then also find out what else they need. Because if you don't go to people and go into people's homes, you won't find out what matters to them most because we hear it a lot from the health professionals, or we think they need this, or we know they need this. But in our research, we always say, go to the people themselves and ask them what they want. And that's what they've done. So our amazing connectors connected these families back into their communities. Mm. Um, the palliative care services and the chronic disease services, it's interesting that the group that they've referred to us, the majority were home alone. Well, I would say 50%. And these are the ones that tend to um, go under the radar of services because yes. they have no one to advocate for them. They can't advocate for themselves. They feel totally stigmatized. I mean, if you have a life-limiting illness, you know, there's no need to feel there's a taboo or a stigma. It's part mm. of, you know, life and death, you know. So there's nothing, you know, that you've done wrong, you know. So, but people tend to shy away. And also in, in the Western culture, people have lost the skill to ask for help or even to accept help. So the outcome of the project is that we have improved the social connectedness of those families because the connectors were able to source um, help from people in the community in general, not necessarily related to those families who were mm. happy to help and became friends. And also we uh, doubled the amount of social networks that people need to sustain them towards the end of life. We've uh, reduced hospital admission and because a lot of these admission could be social because people are by themselves, they get scared if something happens to them. And also they tend to stay less now in the hospital because they've got people in the community who love them and they're waiting for them mm. to go out and, you know, carry on living nicely together. If you take a step back from what the compassionate mm. connectors hear from mm. um, people going through this experience, mm. are, are you struck by 
how different the range of things you hear back are? Or is there some sort of overarching similarity that comes back no matter what the different background or circumstances of the sorts of people uh, who find themselves in this challenging situation? Yes, it's the same thing that keeps coming up again and again and again. Mm. People need love, need friendship, need to live better while they're waiting for, for their death. You know, it's really living with death, how do you, with dying. Mm. How do you do that? Um, people are the same everywhere, you know. And even when we did our research on bereaved people, uh, we did it here in Australia. Some other colleagues did it in Canada. Some other colleagues did it in Ireland. Used the same survey. The needs of the bereaved are the same. Uh, who they go to, it's 90% of them go to their family and friends for support. They don't go to health professionals. So, so again, it's about a, a call to action for the health professionals to work with the community. You don't need to do it alone. Most of the time, you need to let those people connect back into their communities to get their sustainable support and affordable on the long term. And it's, it's for them all the time. I mean, you need to make an appointment weeks in advance to, to see a mental health professional. But the community is there for you anytime, you know, day, night. You can call on your friends, on your family to help you. So, so it's about changing the way. And it has. This actually body of work has changed the way now. Um, bereavement support is done mm. in, in a lot of develop, de developed countries. Well, Samar, this is obviously a fascinating and important discussion. And I'm speaking with uh, West Australia's Australian of the Year for 2023, Professor Samar Aoun. Uh, and Samar, some people might say, well, this is a, a great discussion, but why are we discussing it on the year that made me? Uh, there is, however, I think a pretty compelling connection. So could you tell us what you've chosen as the year that made you and why? Uh, 2012, when my dad died, mm. I got a call from Lebanon to say, you must come quickly because we don't wait a long time to bury our dead. And I was just getting prepared to go to work, to chair a research meeting. So I called mm. work to say, I'm going to be late. This is, the, this is the reason why I need to book my ticket. It's quite urgent. Um, and uh, I did that. And then through my tears and my pain, I still went to work not to disappoint my colleagues, walked into the meeting room and no one said anything to me. They carried on as, as usual. Mm -hmm. And I sort of looked at them and I, I think they're all health professionals as well. So it sort of made me think, well, even health professionals don't know what to say. I'm sure mm -hmm. that's the reason why they didn't say anything, not that they, they didn't care. So, and I said, well, to myself, that's not okay. No, um, something mm -hmm. needs to change. Anyway, the following day, it was Australia Day. I was, I was um, on the plane to Lebanon. And again, you know, the, there it was a totally different experience. I was overwhelmed by the love, the affection, the dignity that the community had showed to me, my dad, my whole family. I felt I was carried on a cloud like the whole three days I was there. Uh, they took care of everything. Uh, they were there with us all day, all evening for three days of mourning in the, in the church hall. Uh, you know, we ate together, we laughed together, we cried together. And it's almost like I felt that acute grief left my system there and then after three days. It was it's a surreal, one of those surreal feelings again that's happened to me. So on the way back on the plane, I was thinking, this is it. This is where death, dying, grief and loss belongs. The community does it really well. 
And, you know, as, uh, you know, a developing country as Lebanon, they were, they were still doing it well. So let's bring this back. And, and then, you know, I started researching more compassionate communities. And, of course, the work that we've done on bereavement support, because it had international exposure, then uh, colleagues who were working in the field of compassion communities, because it's an international movement, we haven't created sort of something new here, um, they started contacting me and say, look, this is the first time you've pro- that we have evidence provided that it works, you know, with all the, you know, really hard statistics that the research had provided. Mm-hmm. We also have continual, uh, you know, education and awareness. For instance, we have uh, once a year, a week that we do, it's called Dying to Know Day where people mm. come to learn about what they really want to know and feel they couldn't do it in a safe space. They couldn't really open the subjects in their families. So they come and get skills by really listening to other people, how they coped with death, with grief, ask questions, you know, get all the skills that they need. Uh, what we hope to do this year, and we're working on it, is um, g- getting people more accustomed to visit the cemetery as one of those open public places, you know, not, you know, hide and not say that you've gone to visit your loved one. Uh, so we're going to have a concert in the cemetery. Summer, I know another specific group uh, that you focus on is people living with motor neuron disease. You're the chair yes. of, M- of the MND Association in WA and director on the board of MND Australia. Why is that area so important to you? Well, that's what really grabbed me to stay in palliative care because my background is public health. So I look at diseases of all sorts at the, at the population health level. Uh, but when I was invited to join a palliative care team and I looked at the people who are not really benefiting from palliative care, motor neuron disease, this is a disease where from the time of diagnosis is a death sentence. We still have mm. no cure and no treatment. And what are we doing for them? I mean, obviously, as having the MND associations in every state, this is the lifeline for them because we offer so much support, not just for the person with the disease, but for their spouses who are the main carers for them at home throughout their you know, journey and their families, their kids. So we, we have a lot that we do for them. Um, some of them a little bit funded by health department, but the rest is from fundraising and donations and mm. Uh, you know, grants that we're able to get. Well, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you, Samar. Thank you so much for joining us on The Year That Made Me. Oh, thank you, Julian. My pleasure. And we always finish up The Year That Made Me, Samar, by asking our guests to select a piece of music that's special to them, maybe related to The Year That Made You, maybe not. What have you chosen for us today? Absolutely everybody for Vanessa Amorosi. It just Uh embodies what we are doing in compassionate communities. So when you look at the lyrics, it's about everybody needs a hand to hold, everybody needs a shoulder to cry on, everybody breathes and everybody bleeds. So, and our motto in the Southwest Compassion Community Network is every, it's everybody's business, it's everybody's responsibility to know how to care for someone who's caring, dying or grieving. So absolutely everybody will use it in everything we say and do. Absolutely. And thank you, Samar, for everything that you've done to make sure that absolutely everybody has a compassionate community uh, when they have to go through something that is facing all of us. Thank you again. Thank you, Julian.
think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.